We are getting close to the end of our journey through the Gospel of Mark. In fact, we only have two more chapters after today's where we look at Mark chapter 14. Now, a few, a few weeks back, I had asked you all, I began the message by asking you to remember one of the best sandwiches you've ever had. Do you remember this, those of you who are around? I asked you about, remember the best sandwich you ever had. I loved asking that question because I didn't expect this, but I got a ton of sandwich recommendations after service. So, hey, we're eating pretty good these days. Uh, If you need recommendations, you can now come to me and I can share those with you. My favorite one was uh, when Jerry came up. He had a picture of a sandwich on his phone. Right after service, I'm like, how'd you have this? I'm like, you found it so quickly. And I forget the place. He'll tell you the meat. It was like, this much meat. You like needed a knife to cut through that sandwich. And that's good to me. All this talk about a sandwich. Why am I talking about a sandwich? Well, have you ever gotten, have you ever made a sandwich at home? You were super excited about it. It looked amazing, right? But you were, you were made it in kind of a frenzy because you're so hungry and you start eating it. It tastes delicious. It tastes good. And then you take another bite and it tastes kind of funky, right? And then you look down and what you dreaded and thought was going to happen, you look down and you notice the bread's moldy. Anyone else ever encounter this? You have to throw, throw it out, right? Now the inside is still good, but the outside is disgusting. I'm trying to eat a salad, yeah. <laughs> Big chance of that. All this talk about a sandwich, it's actually kind of fitting because today is all about a meal. It's about this meal, the only meal that actually matters. We're talking today about the Last Supper. I mention the sandwich because there's this thing that the gospel writer, John Mark, who wrote Mark, uses called the Markin Sandwich. It's where it's these, it's, it's, it's these things, it's these truths that all point to the same thing, that, but together they, they make up the, the truth, but they look a little bit different. Before we looked at a Mark and Sandwich, we're looking at another Mark and Sandwich today. But unlike the last one where it was good, 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 this is moldy, amazing, moldy. All right? So that's what we're doing today as we prepare ourselves for the feast of a lifetime before us here. We're in Mark chapter 14, so we'll begin by reading, starting at verse 12, and I invite you to join in with me by looking at your Bible or upon the screen as we hear the true word of the Lord. It goes like this. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city. You'll find there a man carrying a jar of water. He will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asks, Where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. 
to make preparations there for us. So the disciples, they left, and they went into the city, and yes, they found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And we'll pause there. Now, today is Palm Sunday, and yet we are focusing in on the Last Supper as we go chapter by chapter. The, the triumphal entry that Johanna read for us starts way back in Mark 11, and yet there's also a beautiful similarity here, and it begins right in the beginning with these instructions to prepare the Passover feast. What you just heard were very specific instructions for the disciples to find a man carrying a jug of water. First, that is not a normal thing. The men would often not carry the water. That was often the woman's job in the ancient Middle East. And so they were to find this man and then follow him and then ask where they might feast. This is very similar to the instructions you may recall from Palm Sunday when Jesus sends his disciples out to find the donkey or the colt, depending on the gospel, and, and what you will find and how to prepare for his great entry. Same thing here. Jesus is giving them these very specific instructions. And together, these two incidences of giving these instructions, what do they reveal to us? Aside from just being really cool that Jesus has this information. Well, yes, God has given Jesus the foreknowledge to know these things. But what else? It reminds us that Jesus is in total and complete control and awareness over everything that happens in the course of the last week of his earthly life. There is nothing that happens in Holy Week that surprises Jesus. There is nothing that happens that was outside of his plan. Nothing about this week surprised him. And as we prepare for this meal, we recognize he willingly took this all on. We're going to celebrate Maundy Thursday. We're going to celebrate Good Friday, and the pain and the heartache he went through. And we begin Holy Week by proclaiming he willingly walked that path for you and me. And what else? If he willingly walked toward the cross for the love that was set before him and endured all that it brought, then we know he will meet each and every one of us each and every day that he will know exactly what you and I will go through each and every day. And no matter how tough it is, it's not too tough for Jesus. And he will walk with you through it every step of the journey. And he will stay by your side. He did not shy away at the cross. He will not shy away through your trials of your day. He will meet you and guide you through. Now, I love the little line about just go and he'll tell you where a room is and just make preparations there. To us, that's kind of crazy. Like if I just showed up at Kylie's house and saying, I'm having a whole bunch of people over for a very long meal, you'd actually, you're a bad example. You'd be like, come on in. But like many of us would be like, no, my house isn't clean. I don't have the space and not a chance. But back in the day, 
Jewish residents of Jerusalem, they were expected to make available their spare rooms for those that are coming to celebrate Passover. This was a big thing. This was a regular thing. And so they would prepare the guest room or those with the means, their extra space, to welcome in these Passover pilgrims, as they called them, so that they might celebrate the holiest of the Jewish holidays. So that's not too unusual at all for the culture of that day. But what is fascinating is how the Last Supper happens and takes place during this Passover ceremony. It actually carries incredible significance. Passover is the major Jewish holiday, and it's focused all on God's rescue of his people out of captivity of Egypt. If you're interested in learning about that most amazing of accounts, you can read about it in Exodus in your Bible. And it is the holiest festival of the Jewish year is this Passover celebration. During this meal, they would retell the entire Exodus account. And it would, they would bring out its meaning. And they would, they, would, they would recognize how throughout the meal, God's deliverance and saving of his people would be represented in the symbolism of that meal. So throughout it, they would remember their past deliverance of Egypt, from Egypt, and they would anticipate the future redemption of the Messiah. Sound familiar? See, Exodus reveals that God made a way where there was no way. God provides when all seems lost, that God saves and rescues his people, that God will go to any lengths necessary to bring freedom to those he loves. All of this is present in the Exodus account, and it is present in Jesus Christ as we celebrate at this table with our feast of communion. Because at this table, we remember that God made a way where there was no way. We remember that God provides when all seems lost. At this table, we proclaim that God saves and rescues his people. And we say that God will go to any lengths necessary, even becoming that which he despises by becoming sin, even enduring suffering, even giving his life to bring freedom to us, his wayward children. And we anticipate at this table that Jesus, our Messiah, will come again to make all things right once and for all. The significance of the Last Supper happening and occurring during Passover is that it connects the story of Jesus with the story of the Exodus, and it shows how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. Now, these Passover meals were something. They would last hours. And get this, there would be readings, there would be songs, there would be all these different movements within it, but they don't begin the third phase of the meal— until way later, it would be hours. That third phase of the meal is important because that's when they actually get to start eating. <laughs> Can you imagine of coming over to dinner and saying, yes, you're, you come excited and expectant and hungry. And it's like, we are going to sit at the table now and we will eat in three hours. 
but this was an important act of worship for them. So, so they, would, they would be several hours in until they got to the time they ate. And because of what the text tells us, that means the institution of the Last Supper didn't happen until several hours into the meal. So it had been several hours of Jesus uniting with his disciples around the table. We have significant account of his teaching and his words and his prayers from that time throughout all the Gospels. I encourage you to look into those this week in preparation for what's to come next week. But even more shocking than the length of time this takes is what Jesus says right before instituting the Lord's Supper. And it brings us to our sandwich today. I told you, moldy, goodness, moldy, right? More accurately, betrayal, communion, abandonment. Look at this first piece of moldy bread. We're going to look at both pieces first, and then we'll hone in on the goodness within and what it reveals about all of it for us today. So right before communion, this is what we read about betrayal. So while they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. Well, it's one of the twelve, he replied. It's one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And then from there, it goes right into communion. We forget that. But honestly, the theme of this whole chapter of Mark chapter 14, which is the longest chapter in Mark, the theme of the whole chapter could be the abandonment of Jesus. And here he lays it all out. This is a high-stakes moment. This is an up the tension, uh, up the stress and the speculation. That is set to a hundred now after Jesus tells them this. One of you will betray me. Have you ever experienced betrayal? It's probably one of the most gut-wrenching things we can go through. It's the betrayal of a loved one or a friend. Just the idea of it makes us kind of queasy. It's one of the deepest pains we can experience. Now, if you knew in your heart of hearts, and you had the evidence of it like Jesus would, of a person that was going to betray you, that they already had betrayed him in his heart, can you fathom looking them in the eye? Can you fathom sitting with them around a table for hours. Can you imagine praying for him, cleaning their feet and taking their physical filth onto you, the sign of the other filth that was going to be taken on? Can you imagine giving them food? Can you imagine any of that? And yet, that's our Savior. 
Now, there were more present in this room than just the 12 disciples. We often think it's just the 12 disciples, and we picture them all on that one table. There's that famous, what, I don't even remember that artist. What, Leonardo? Sure, yeah. One of the Ninja Turtles painted it. <laughs> Sorry, that's my era. Um, there was more than 12, however, present within that space. We know Jesus had many followers of different levels, and during the Passover feast, women and children would be present. In fact, there were specific readings that the children would give as they remember the story of Exodus. And so we don't often think of women and children being present, but it's highly likely that they were. But it sounds like, based on the context of what Scripture gives us, they're not the ones reclining at the table with Jesus. They're more just filling that upper room, that space, along with Jesus. But it is one of the twelve, we know, that will betray him. So the twelve are reclining, and Jesus specifies, it is one of the twelve. It is one who reclines and dips bread with me. And you can imagine in that moment, all eyes turn to the twelve. And it ups the ante even more. These are God's, like, chosen, chosen. Jesus handpicked them as the 12 apostles, and it's one of them who will betray him. But Jesus then also further reveals that this is all going according to God's plan. Nothing is happening outside of his awareness or his control because he says right within there, The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. He will accomplish his purposes. He will do what Scripture says he will do. He will fulfill all those prophecies of the Old Testament. Nothing in this week will surprise Jesus. God is in full control over it all. And yet, thinking of our own betrayal, it's just gut-wrenching to imagine this. The love of our Savior bleeding (laughs) as he's sitting here with those who he loves. Judas, one of the disciples, one of those closest to him, seeing all the miracles we are amazed by, hearing all the teachings we are astounded by, and yet still making this choice. Mark, more than any other gospel, shows the human side of Jesus Christ, and he shows us more clearly that human side. And Here we only get the slightest little glimpse into what Jesus is experiencing, but we know it is deep pain. But we know that deep pain is what he endured every single moment of his life as our suffering servant, as the man of sorrows. Loving and living amongst a people so broken by sin that they would abandon him, their Savior, in his greatest hour of need. And so Jesus proclaims the betrayal. He moves right into the Lord's Supper. But before we settle there the rest of our time together today, we must look at our other piece of moldy bread. On the other side of the Lord's Supper, the conclusion of the Passover feast, this is what we read. When they had sung a hymn, they went out. To the Mount of Olives, you all will fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. 
But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. This table is the last time we see Jesus gather in unity with his disciples. The celebration of communion for us is of the most sacred traditions that we hold as Christians. And yet it is with a bitter irony that we could recall this feast, that it, this feast that's re- reminiscent of victory and joy, that it first begins with an announcement of treachery, and it is immediately followed by a declaration that all Jesus' disciples will fall away. Right after this, Jesus and Peter have their exchange where Peter says, hey, if all other falls away, I won't. And we know that proves untrue. The unifying symbol of the table is immediately followed by the promise of scattering. The fellowship of the disciples is broken, and it will take Jesus traveling through death and back to life as the fulfillment of the promise of communion to restore his wayward children back to him. But if you have ears to hear, under the heartbreak, under the shock of the news, in the words of the Savior mentioning all will fall away, he again reveals that he has a plan and it's all going accordingly. There is hope on the other side, as he clearly says, after I have risen. After I have risen. They don't get it, but we have the gift of of hindsight, and we can say, oh, he is going to rise. He will come back. The end that is coming on Good Friday is a necessary ending. Heart-wrenching, absolutely, but necessary. And it's not just an end, it is a beginning. It is the turning of the chapters to begin the final act, Jesus' last act of defeat over the evil one. And so betrayal and abandonment is a sandwich with each side of that Last Supper. And we arrive now at the beauty of this table, the goodness that is within. For it is here that we discover the means of grace in the midst of sin and shame. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. All this talk about a Markin sandwich is to help us understand why this all matters in the first place. In Mark's sandwich conviction and con- convention, as he writes this, it's the middle portion that always reveals the key to understanding the whole thing. And here in the middle of this sandwich, we have the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper being in the middle of the proclamation of betrayal and the proclamation of abandonment. 
we see that the self-sacrifice of Jesus is contrasted dramatically with the infidelity of the disciples. But Jesus did not come to lay his life down for the worthy. Only he is worthy. He alone is worthy. Indeed, none of us are worthy of this feast. No, what we learn is it's the sin of precisely those like the disciples. It's the sin of those whom he loves and who betrays him and abandons him that he lays down his life for. It's, it's the unworthy. It's the unworthy. It's the cowardly. It's the unfaithful. It's the wayward. It's the broken. If we're honest, it's for you and it's for me. The sandwich illustrates to us the truth of Romans 5, verse 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At this table, we remember our Savior. We remember our Savior who gave himself completely. As we just read, as he, as he sat with the disciples and he took it, he said, this is my body broken for you. It's not like a broken bone. He broke himself completely and utterly. He gave himself fully to us, leaving nothing behind When we read of his body being broken, the word that is translated to our language for body, it means his whole self, his entire being. Jesus Christ came and gave his entire being for us to make us whole. And as he shared with the disciples, as we just read, after they had finished their meal and he poured out the cup, said, this cup, is my new covenant of my blood, which is poured out completely for you to the very last drop. We read that when they pierced his side, nothing but water flowed out because he had already poured out everything within him for us. It is at this table and this feast that we remember our Savior, the perfect Son of God who became sin and died upon a sinner's cross so that all who believe in him might live and be freed from the chains of sin and shame for all of eternity. And we anticipate at this table Jesus' final victory over the evil one and the complete restoration and redemption of the world. Doesn't this table reflect our perfect Savior? He enters humbly on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna, save us, knowing that those shouts will soon turn to crucify him. And yet, he stepped forward anyway. He washes the feet of his betrayer, his denier, and all who abandon him. And yet, compelled by love, he stepped forward anyway. This table reminds us of our 
filth and our dirt and our grime and our shame as we find ourselves alongside the betrayers and those who abandon him and choose the world and ourselves over him. And yet, his grace extends to us anyway. The Savior suffers, and yet he still serves. True to his servant nature, he offers us this meal as a sign and a seal of God's grace that has been given completely to each of us. The truth is we don't even deserve the crumbs. But what does he do? He offers us this feast of life anyway. That is the love of our Savior made tangible and understandable here in the mystery of our sacrament of communion we get to partake in today. This is the gifts of God for the people of God made real. And so we gather because we have a seat at this table. This sandwich teaches us that all are welcome. All are welcome because we don't come on any of our own merit, but only on his. And he says, come, the unworthy will meet righteousness here. The sinful will be made new here. The dead will experience life here. He invites you to the feast of a lifetime. This is the Lord's table. This is our remembrance of all he is and all he does and all he will do. And so we say, come, come to the table. Let us pray. Almighty God, you are so good to offer us yourself, to give us the gift of your full self, to recognize in this place today that you are not a distant, far-off God, but you entered into our mess and our dirt and our sin and our shame to make a way so that we might be close to you and in union with you forever. Lord, this table reminds us that though sin may separate us, you have closed that gap through the offering of your full self as the perfect sacrificial lamb on our behalf. So we do proclaim, as they proclaimed on that first Palm Sunday, Hosanna, save us. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We acknowledge within us all the dirt and the sin and the shame that is present within us. And we offer it back to you, trusting again that in you alone we find forgiveness of sin, that in you alone we experience life out of death. We thank you for this meal, Lord. We pray as we prepare to partake of these elements that your spirit stirs within us so that we might remember and anticipate exactly what is promised at this table. We proclaim you as Lord and Savior of our life. We humbly say thank you. You alone are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.